reminder before I forget, there is a board meeting after service today. Uh, we didn't have it last week where we moved it to this week. So if you are a part of that, just remember that there is a board meeting this week. I'd also like to say, I'd like to show my appreciation that all the guys this morning didn't wear the same shirt as me. That would have been uh, embarrassing two days in a row. For those of you who don't know what I'm referencing, yesterday uh, we were at a birthday party for a friend of our son, and Isabella a week ago said the theme is going to be beach, so I've got you a Hawaiian shirt or something, like, whatever. I'm not going to argue. I'll just wear what you tell me to do because it's not worth it. So I, we, I put the shirt on, we go, I pull up, I look over, and every single guy there is wearing the same exact shirt, and I was overwhelmed, and I was embarrassed, and that, that just, it was bad. And Isabella caught it on video because she's a loving wife and, you know, cares about my feelings, so. It's on Facebook, believe me. She wanted to put it on Facebook as quick as possible. It's on there. She didn't waste a moment putting it on there, so. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and in that video I lovingly said I hate you. So don't take no one don't <laughs> don't take that out of context and tell people that I hate my wife because that's not true. But I was very embarrassed. <laughs> so this morning we're we're moving on we're we're continuing this series. Last week we introduced what is called inaugurated eschatology, which is just a big word for saying the kingdom is already here, but it's also not yet here. And we, under, we kind of unpacked what makes that possible, what that means. Um, we delved a little bit into the already and the not yet. And this morning, we're going to delve more deeply into the already. Next week, we'll delve more deeply into the not yet. Um, so before we jump into it, before we get started, let's just have a word of prayer first, and then we'll, we'll dive on in. Father, your word tells us that your kingdom is coming. It also tells us that it's already here. And this morning, as we study what that means, I pray you help us to make sense of it, that we learn the attributes of your kingdom, we learn what it means to be a part of that kingdom, that we draw hope in that kingdom, encouragement, and that we desire to serve you in this kingdom. And Lord, I pray this morning that your word will be opened up for us, that it will be clear and active, that you'll speak through me with your message. It's in your son's name that we pray. Amen. Have you ever thought of how different aspects of our life in America would be if just a few things were different hundreds of years ago? If, if things had, had happened differently um, hundreds of years ago? Or have you ever thought about how different maybe things are today, especially, than they were at the founding of our nation? I, I'm sure, if, unless you've been living under a rock... I'm sure you've, you've heard about the whole, the, the new Inflation Reduction Act and all that stuff and, and the fact that there's going to potentially be 87,000 new people that are IRS agents. And I'm not, I don't know about, I don't know the intricate details, I'll be honest with you. I just read the headlines sometimes. And so I saw that that was happening. And it's just, it's interesting to me that there's this possibility that, that we are going to have such a robust taxes, tax system, even more than it originally was, um, when a lot of our founding has to do with getting upset about taxes. Um, it, it, the irony in this new legislation is that our history began because of tax. And, and I've heard it said that we went to war with Britain over a 2% tax hike, which is humorous because now we pay a lot more than that in taxes. 
And that's also not completely true. We didn't go to Britain, go to war with Britain over a 2% tax hike. And, and this is probably going to be one of the most boring introductions of a sermon that you've ever heard. But it, uh, let me get to my point here in a second. If any of you remember your fifth grade history classes, the Stamp Act was an act that was enacted in 1960, or 1765. And it was a way for Britain to recoup expenses for the Seven Years' War. They had spent a lot of money going to war with France over territorial things, and they had to recoup all that money. So they put, imposed this tax on any type of paper, basically, in the States or any type of uh, mail and, and all sorts of things. And a lot of people like to say, well, we went to war with Britain over this act, but that's not entirely true because Britain quickly realized that we weren't going to pay that tax. And, and, and within one year, they repealed that tax act. They repealed the Stamp Act. But then they signed quickly a new one called the Declaratory Act, and that was what we went to war with. We went to war because they repealed the act and then said, but we're going to repeal this tax act because you guys aren't paying it, but here's the new act. We're in charge of you. We tell you what to do. We're, we rule you, and if we tell you to do something, you've got to do that something. And they put that act out after they repealed the Stamp Act, and that was the straw that broke the camel's back. Because if you know anything about Americans, we don't typically want to be ruled. We don't want to be told what to do. We don't like it when people infiltrate on our private business. And that's not just something that's modern, no matter what political aisle you are on. That is something that 200 years ago was true. And that is why we went to war. We went to war because we didn't want to be told what to do. And so, you know, you, now you might be wondering, okay, what does this have to do with anything? Why did we have this history lesson just to learn that I don't like to be told what to do? My wife can tell you that I don't like to be told what to do or vice versa. You know, we, we all kind of have this, this innate passion within us that we want to do what we have our minds set on. It doesn't take a history lesson to determine that, but I want to just point out that when it comes to kingdoms, when it comes to sovereignty, when it comes to submitting, even though we live in the kingdom of America and we might, we might uh, follow or align ourselves with one political aisle or another, a lot of times we struggle with the aspect of being ruled. And... I know I'm going to say that word a lot today because it's about the kingdom. So Eric Hart or any of you that make fun of how I say the word roll and roll and roll, they just all sound the same. I'm sorry. I don't know if it's my West Virginia accent or what, but I'm using the R-U-L-E word, not the R-O-L-L word. So roll, rule, I don't know. It's all the same, rule. It just sounds so, so unnatural when I say it that way. The point is, we, we don't like being ruled. We don't like being told what to do. But that creates problems with our Christian walk. Because when we come to faith in Christ, when we give our lives to Christ, we are saying, Jesus, be my king. Be my ruler. Have sovereignty over my life. I want to belong to your kingdom. And so even though, you know, we can look in history all throughout human history, not just American history, and see that humans don't like being ruled. At the same time, as Christians, we are submitting ourselves to just that. 
which means that whenever we are making that decision, whenever we're making that proclamation, Jesus, take over my life. Here's my life. Come into my life. Let your spirit work within me. We're simultaneously saying, rule my life. Let me be in your kingdom. Let me be a citizen in your kingdom, which means we also have to learn what it means to live in that kingdom. What are our obligations to that kingdom? What does life look like in the kingdom of God already? You know, next week we'll talk about what the kingdom of God in eternity is and, and what that has to do, what the not yet kingdom is. But what does it mean after we submit ourselves to God now, what does it mean to live in that kingdom already? And to really understand this type of uh, language, the kingdom already language, we have to start by looking at what the kingdom is in the Old Testament. So turn with me to Isaiah. This is Isaiah chapter 9. So we've said before that the kingdom of God is a reference in a lot of prophetic literature to what's called the Messianic kingdom. The Messiah was supposed to be of the lineage of David. So he was supposed to come from the line of Judah, from the lineage of David. And he was supposed to be this person that rose up, that got threw off the oppressors, the oppressors of of. Uh, the world that that set Israel back where its rightful place was, that this messianic king was supposed to be a strong ruler. And we get a lot of that language from the book of Isaiah and as well as other prophets. But that sort of understanding of what the messianic kingdom would be, it influenced on what it had. It it influenced how the people during Jesus's day understood the kingdom. So if we're going to understand what Jesus has to say about the kingdom, we have to first understand what the, what the knowledge of the kingdom, what the, the thought of the kingdom was in the day that he first talked about it. So here's where that kind of thought comes from. Isaiah chapter 9, starting in verse 2, it says, The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. A light has dawned on those living in the land of darkness. Now remember, this is a prophetic oracle. This was written in, in, in around the year 600, uh, 650, and it was during a time when uh, the, the northern kingdom of Israel was going through some turmoil um, and, and they were about to potentially be captured. Um, so actually it was 750, not 650. Sorry about that. Wrong. 750 were about to potentially be captured. They were falling apart. And Isaiah gives this prophecy about the kingdom of God or, or the, the prince of peace that would come to eventually rule them. And so even though this people walking in, have been walking in darkness, they're about to see a great light. So this, if you're an Israelite that's in captivity, reading the scroll of the prophet Isaiah, you're going to read this and you're going to find some hope. And as he continues on, he says, talking about God, you have enlarged the nation and increased its joy. The people have rejoiced before you as they rejoice at harvest time and as they rejoice when dividing spoils. For you have shattered their oppressive yoke. And the rod on their shoulders, the staff of their oppressor, just as you did on the day of Midian. For every trampling boot of battle and the bloodied garments of war will be burned as fuel for the fire. For a child will be born for us. A son will be given to us. And the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. The dominion will be vast and its prosperity will never end. He will reign on the throne of David and over his kingdom and establish and sustain it with justice and righteousness from now on and forever. The zeal of the Lord of armies will accomplish this. So 
Put yourselves in the shoes of an Israelite person who has been cast out of their kingdom, who is being oppressed by other nations, specifically Assyria and Babylon and Greece and Rome, all throughout their existence after being kicked out of the land of, of Jerusalem, of, of, of Israel, the Israelites found themselves at the hands of oppressors. And imagine you're one of those people, one of those people that are constantly beaten down, constantly broken, and then you recall the words of Isaiah saying, eventually, one's going to come who's going to sit on the throne of David, and the government's going to be on his shoulders. He's going to throw off your oppressors. His dominion will be vast. His prosperity will never end. And the kingdom, the nation will be enlarged. And everyone's joy will be increased. Now, if you're an Israelite, that is hopeful to you. But you're also reading this through the lens of an Israelite. And you're thinking of this in terms of your nation. You're thinking of this in terms of your kingdom. In terms of only helping your people. And so whenever the Pharisees come into the scene during Jesus' ministry, this is the attitude that they had. This is what they were thinking of. They were thinking of a political kingdom through a messianic Messiah, through the line of David. And so as the Old Testament states here, they saw the kingdom as something that would be vast, that would be prosperous, that would never end, but would be something earthly. It would be a time when the Israelites would be on top of the world, where they would rule, where, where their king would throw off the oppressors that were on them. Didn't have anything to do with sin. Didn't have anything to do with the dominion of Satan and evil. It didn't even have anything really to do with the Gentiles. They would be a blessing to the Gentiles, but you better believe the Jewish people thought that they were the ones that were going to do the ruling. Ruling. They weren't concerned with an eternity. They weren't concerned with a kingdom outside of a political kingdom given to them by the Messiah through the Davidic line. That was the understanding of the kingdom motif given to us through the prophets as understood by the Pharisees. And it's important that we know that, that we understand that, because Jesus completely contradicts that. And if we don't understand what Jesus is contradicting when he speaks to the Pharisees, then we're not going to fully understand what it is that he's saying. Okay, so we have to understand first, the kingdom understanding of the Old Testament, the kingdom understanding of the Pharisees was a political messianic kingdom where Israel would be on top of the world, essentially. Their dominion would be vast. It would be prosperous. Their oppressors would be gone. And so in the Pharisees' day, who were the oppressors? It was the Romans. That the Romans would be defeated. The Jewish people would have their own nation. They would be on top of the world. Now, turning to Luke Chapter 17. It says in verse 20, Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus answered them, The kingdom of God isn't coming with something observable. No one will say, See here or, or there. For you see, the kingdom of God is already in your midst. 
<laughs> and the Pharisees would have said, uh, no, we're paying taxes. We're being beaten down by the Romans. We don't have a, a vast and prosperous kingdom. You think the kingdom of God is already here? Golly, you are, you are an imbecile. Who are you to say this? This is completely different from what we've been told the kingdom of God is going to be. This is completely different than what the Messiah is supposed to be. You're nuts. <laughs> but this is God talking. This is our Messiah and King speaking. And so even though what Jesus tells the Pharisees is completely contrary to what they thought the kingdom was going to be, we have to understand that the Pharisees were contrary to what the kingdom was supposed to be. That their thinking was wrong, and Jesus is the one telling the truth. The kingdom of God isn't this thing that we're going to know, that we're going to see, that we're going to interact with while we live here. It's already in our midst. And what does it mean when Jesus says it's already in your midst? What makes the kingdom of God in the midst of the Pharisees, in the midst of the first century Jews? It's him. He's the difference. Before Jesus came, the kingdom of God wasn't there. When Jesus came, the kingdom of God became established. Why? Because God walked the earth. God walked the earth, which meant the kingdom of God was there. And it wasn't seeable, it wasn't understandable, because people didn't look to Jesus and say, you're definitely God, you carpenter, you son of a woman who, for all, all that we know, probably committed adultery. She didn't, but that's what everyone would have saw from his mom. People didn't look at Jesus and say, you are the God of all. You are the mighty God. You are the Prince of Peace. You are the wonderful counselor. They said, you're the carpenter from Nazareth. So, yeah, it didn't make sense that he was the one bringing the kingdom, but he was. And when he looks at the Pharisees and says, the kingdom of God is in your midst because I'm the king. Yeah, right. But he was. He admits as much. And he shows us what that means. And so the kingdom of God is already here, Jesus says. And the kingdom of God stays even after Jesus leaves, even after Jesus resurrects, even after Jesus ascends and goes back to heaven. It stays. It remains. Why does it remain? How does it remain? Because Jesus promised the Spirit of God to remain. It says in Acts chapter 1, we read this last week, while Jesus was with them, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for the Father's promise, which he said, you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit in a few days. And in John's gospel, he goes on to say, not only about the Spirit coming, but that they wanted, they needed to want the Spirit to come. They, they didn't want Jesus to leave, but he was saying, you should desire to me to leave, because when I leave, the counselor is going to come, the advocate, the, the one who is going to empower you, the Spirit of God. The other member of the Trinity will be here. So yeah, I'm gone. I'm not here anymore, but the kingdom remains. Why does the kingdom of God remain? Because just because the Son isn't here, doesn't mean God's not here, because the Spirit of God dwells in each and every one of you. 
And so, yeah, the, the, the Jewish people would have understood the messianic kingdom of this political kingdom that, that would come in through the throne of David that would bring this vast Israelite domain, but that wasn't the case. The kingdom was established when Jesus walked this earth and it remained and is already here because God still is with us through the spirit of God that resides within us. The kingdom of God is already Jesus, the Messiah, ushered in that kingdom, as the prophet said, and that kingdom remains through the Spirit. So what does it mean to live in it? What does it look like not only to say, I, I believe that the kingdom of God is still here. I believe that the kingdom of God is provided through the Spirit. I believe that Jesus is the Messiah. I believe that Jesus is the King. I believe that Jesus ushered in the kingdom. All of that is good. It's good to believe. But even the demons believe. What does it mean to live in it? What does it mean to reside in it? What does it mean to be a citizen of the kingdom of God? Well, first, and we'll get to this in a second, it means you have the Spirit in you. If you don't have the spirit of God within you, if you haven't given your life to Christ, if you haven't let him enter in, if you haven't let him wash you clean, then you are not a citizen of the kingdom of God. That's just how it is. Because God isn't within you. You're not a member of the kingdom of God. Sorry. You can't really get passports to come into this kingdom either. It's, it's, you're either in or you're out. So that's the first and foremost. But then once we have that spirit within us, what does it mean to live in the kingdom. Jesus gives us a little bit of information on that when he teaches his disciples how to pray. Listen to what Jesus, when, when Jesus teaches his disciples how to pray, listen to how he does this. He says, you should pray like this. Our Father in heaven, your name be honored as holy. So first off, he is personalizing the way that we come before God. Up until this point, you don't pray to God, Father, Abba, Dad. You don't pray that way to God. You say, my sovereign king of, of, the, of all things, don't smite me down. I'm coming before you. And Jesus is saying, no, I'm in you. You are my brothers and sisters. When you talk to God, you call him Dad. He's your father now. And when you pray, you should say, our Father in heaven, you are holy and good and perfect. Your kingdom come. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth just as it is in heaven. So first of all, he's saying through the spirit, God is personal to you. God is your father. God is related to you. But that's not the only thing that gives you a citizenship. That gives you the citizenship, but that's not what it means to live as a citizen of the kingdom. What it means to live as a citizen of the kingdom is what you say next. Hey, Father, let your kingdom come. Let your will be done here in the already, just as it's being done in the not yet. And we minimize this prayer. We minimize how difficult that prayer can be. And we just pray it before a basketball game or a football game while we hold hands with our teammates and no one really fully understands what this means. This is a hard prayer. This is our way of saying, God, 
I now have your spirit within me. I am your child, and I don't care what happens to me in this life as long as your kingdom comes, as long as your will be done. It's ironic we, we pray this with our teammates before games because, frankly, what we're saying is, God, even if I lose this game, as long as your kingdom comes and your will be done. I think if we made that statement clear, that prayer would be prayed less before football and basketball games. Because the point is, when we're making this prayer, we are humbly deciding to live in the will of God, not the will of ourselves. That's what it means to be in the kingdom of God. It means that we gain that citizenship through the spirit, but to live in that citizenship is to say every single day, your kingdom, your will in my life. Not my kingdom, not my nation, not my political aisle, not my desires of this world, yours. And that's a very hard prayer, a prayer that takes humility, a prayer that takes a devotion to God. And it also takes an action. Listen to what Jesus, as he continues on in Acts, what he continues to tell his disciples. He said to them, it's not for you to know the times or periods that the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes come on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all of Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. So it's, it's one thing to say, the Spirit is within me, so now I'm a part of the kingdom. It's another thing to say, okay, because the Spirit is within me, God, you know what? Your kingdom come. Not my life. It's not about me. It's about you and your kingdom and your will. And then it's another thing to even go further and say, okay, because it's about you, because it's about your kingdom, because your spirit is within me, let me be your witness. Show me where I need to go in the world. Show me how I need to be your hands and feet. Show me how I bring more people into this kingdom that is yours. To live in the kingdom already means that we're submitting to the will of God. It means that we are humbly coming before him and saying, my life is yours because your kingdom is already here. And your spirit is within me and I'm a part of that kingdom and I am submitting to your rule. And like we said at the start, that is hard for us to do. But when we do that, the kingdom of God as described by Isaiah, it's not just this, this metaphor or this piece of imagery of the not yet. A prosperous kingdom that is vast, we might think, well, that's not the kingdom already. But it is. Because when we are fulfilling what it means to be a part of the kingdom, we're taking the name of Jesus to the ends of the earth. How vast is the ends of the earth? And when we're living and what Jesus calls us to do, and we are placing our hope and our faith and our trust in him. And we're saying, no matter what happens in this life, I trust that I have blessing and I trust that I have the treasure of all treasures in heaven, then we're prosperous. 
And so what Isaiah said about the kingdom is true in the already and it's true in the not yet. That the kingdom is vast, that it spreads to the ends of the earth and the kingdom is prosperous because our treasure is not a treasure that can be measured here. Because it's a treasure that is given to us in its fullness through the kingdom and the eternity that is being prepared for us. Ultimately, I want, I want to close with this passage from, from Luke's sermon on the plain. Jesus is, <clears throat> the Sermon on the Mount, the Sermon on the Plain, uh, scholars debate on whether or not this was all one sermon at, given at one single time or whether or not it is Jesus' greatest hits. Like it's all of his biggest teachings, all of his most well-known teachings, all compiled together and put in one place, both in Luke's gospel and Matthew's gospel. Regardless, we know that this is the center point of his teaching. And at the center point of the center point of his teaching is the Beatitudes. Listen to how Luke gives these Beatitudes. He said, Jesus looked up at his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor the kingdom of God is yours. Blessed are you who are now hungry because you will be filled. Blessed are you who weep now because you will laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you, insult you, and slander your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. Take note. Your reward is great in heaven. This is the way their ancestors used to treat the prophets. You see, the kingdom of God is already when we stand firm in the name of Christ, regardless of what the world says. The kingdom of God is already when we trust that all the emotional, the physical, or the spiritual pains that we go through now will be reconciled by our God and King. The kingdom of God is already when we are willing to live as and live with less in this life because we know that we have an eternity of splendor awaiting for us and the Spirit of God already filling us. The kingdom of God is His. It is bought by Him, ruled by Him, it's judged by Him. If you look elsewhere in Isaiah, when Isaiah talks about the kingdom of God, it's, it's this reversal of the natural order. He says, wolves will lie with sheep. Children will be leading young lions. He says, the, the, the poor will be uplifted and the wicked will be destroyed. This is a reversal of the way we live life right now. And Jesus is saying, through me, this kingdom is coming. Through me only. And if we want to be a part of that kingdom, we have to submit to the will of God. And to submit to the will of God, we have to come to him humbly. Poor, broken, hungry, ready to be filled. We participate in the kingdom of God through humility. And so what principles do we apply to our lives in order to do this? In order to live in the kingdom of God already, what principles do we apply? First, we have to assess how much of our prayer life 
is spent intently praying for God's kingdom to come. I mean, ask yourself this. When you pray, when you come before God, how much are you asking for things for you, for things for your friends, for things for your family, versus God, your will be done? <laughs> when Jesus is teaching on prayer in the kingdom, it's very clear that to live in the kingdom means to pray for the kingdom, to pray for the will of God. And how much is our prayer life focused on the already kingdom compared to the busyness of our lives. Secondly, how are we being the hands and feet of this kingdom? Jesus says we will be his witnesses in all of Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So how do we stack up in that analysis? What are we doing to be a witness? What are we doing to expand the kingdom? How are, is our fervor and our excitement for dwelling in the kingdom of God already, for having the spirit within our, us already, how is that translating to how we live in our lives, spreading and witnessing to that kingdom? And lastly, and I think one of the most important things we have to think of, what kingdom do we find ourselves more allegiant to? When we look at how we live our lives, does it seem like we're more allegiant to a sports team than we are to the sovereign king and God of all? Are we more allegiant to a political aisle than we are to simply sitting in the will and sovereignty of God? Are we more allegiant to collecting treasures and desires of this world than we are to being satisfied with just the spirit of God? Who or what are we most allegiant to? And as I said before, as humans, as Americans, the concept of being ruled is difficult for us. But to live in the kingdom of God means we are not only being ruled, but we want to be ruled. That we want to submit to him. That we want him to tell us where to go, what to do. That we want his kingdom to come, to expand. That we want to be a part of it more and more already because eventually it's all we're going to be a part of for all of eternity. And as I said, you're not a citizen of this kingdom unless you have the spirit of God within you. There's no passport, there's no green card to allow you to come in. It's the spirit of God living within you, making you a part of the kingdom or you're not. And I, I hope that every single one of us has that spirit within us, but then when we have that spirit within us, we are submitting to the will of God, we're living in the will of God, we are participating in the kingdom of God, already knowing what he's giving us into eternity. This morning, as we close, as we close with the song of worship, if you haven't submitted to the will of God as a Christian, if you've given your life to him and the spirit is within you and you've not fully submitted to him, make that decision to do it today. And if you don't have the spirit within you and you can't confidently say, I am a member of the citizen of the, I am a citizen of the kingdom of God, then come forward today and make that decision to let the spirit in and make you a citizen of his kingdom. Let's close in a word of prayer this morning. Father, your kingdom is already here. It is established. 
and your sovereignty is vast and good. And Lord, I, I pray that we as the church here at Freedom, that we are fulfilling what you want us to do, that we are being your witnesses all over the world, that we are praying for your kingdom to come, that we are praying for your will to be done, that we are submitting to you with joy. And I pray, God, that anyone here who doesn't have that spirit within them, who hasn't given their lives, that you are tugging on their hearts, telling them why they need to do so. God, thank you for giving your life for us so that we can live with you and be in your presence for all of eternity. It's in your son's name that we pray. Amen.